Welcome to the Jesus Chronicles, your crash course about the world-transforming life of Jesus Christ. I'm your host, Sandy Laws, and this is episode number three. On the Jesus Chronicles, we're walking through the life of Jesus in chronological order. Well, there are three marquee events that define Jesus' earthly life. His birth, his death, and his resurrection. But exactly what happened in between his birth and resurrection can be tricky to put into a concise timeline. That's because the stories about Jesus in the four Gospels are not necessarily in the order of when they happened. Each of the Gospel writers decided his order to the stories. The Gospels are written in the genre of historic narrative literature, and they are designed to tell the story of Jesus' life, but they are not what we consider to be a modern-day biography. Add to this the fact that while Matthew, Mark, and Luke have many of the same stories about Jesus, they're not completely in sync on all the details of each story. Plus, John's Gospel is quite different from the synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But I have a good source for a plausible timeline of Jesus' life, and I'm using that as my guide. I conduct research for each of these podcasts, and you can find the sources I use for my research on my website, www.thejesuschronicles.org. In Episode 2, I answered two questions. What happened in the time between the Old and New Testament, and how was it relevant to the story of Jesus' birth? I summarized how the events that took place during this period of time helped to shape Israel and made it the place it was at the time that Jesus was born. Let me try to put this 400-year time period into some context. Recently, my husband Rich and I and our cute little dog Finley took an epic road trip. We drove about 3,000 miles in the southern and eastern U.S., to pass the time, we listened to Ron Chernow's biography about George Washington. Washington became president 230 years ago, in 1789. Now just think how much has happened in this country in the past two centuries. All the things that have happened in the U.S. and the world have shaped this nation. And even in my own life, I have watched as our country has engaged in many wars I've seen many cultural trends emerge and disappear, and I've also witnessed over and over again the peaceful transition of power in our country through elections. When I relate the same idea to Israel, I have a better understanding of what the Jewish people endured century after century. But there is one big difference. Once established, the United States of America has always been, and hopefully will always be, a free and self-governed nation. That's not true with Israel. As I talked about, the Jewish people have had to deal with century after century of hostile leaders. That said, it's time to jump back into our story. The Romans are here. In the last episode, I left off with the Jewish family dynasty the Hasmoneans, in control of Israel. What happens next is surprising and impacts Israel for centuries. As the Hasmonean dynasty aged, it decayed, crumbling under the weight of the constant family infighting. As the story goes, two Hasmonean brothers 
were each vying for control of Israel. Incredibly, both brothers reached out to the Roman general, Pompey, for help. They both met with him and asked for help to oust the other brother. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm thinking, oh man, that's a huge mistake. I mean, I get it that if the brothers were at odds, they didn't necessarily know what the other one was doing. But if you're General Pompey and you have two brothers appealing to you to form an alliance against the other brother, I'm pretty sure your first thought is, wow, here's an opportunity. I mean, in Jewish history, it wasn't unusual for the leaders to try to form an alliance with other nearby nations. It was a self-preservation strategy. But Rome, I mean, Rome was a different animal altogether. Rome was far less interested in alliances and far more interested in total control. In 63 BC, Pompey responded to the brothers' request by marching east and taking control of Jerusalem. For three months, Pompey laid siege to Jerusalem, choking the city off from the outside world and from any help. When he finally broke through the opposition's barricade, his army slaughtered everyone in sight. 12,000 Jews were killed, and only a few Roman soldiers were killed. It was a total bloodbath. When it was all over, Pompey and his leaders marched into the Holy of Holies in the temple, thereby desecrating it. Thus, Roman rule of Israel began under a dark cloud of genocide and the desecration of the temple once again. Well, we're closing in on the decades before Jesus was born. And at this juncture, I'm going to shift gears, and I want to bring four people to your attention. They are Caesar Augustus, the Roman emperor, Herod, the client king of the province of Judea, and Mary and Joseph, the earthly parents of Jesus. These four people really represent the spectrum of people living in Rome and Israel, from the very highest echelon of power and wealth to the lowest and poorest of people. And their stories will help us to understand why God chose Mary and Joseph to be the earthly parents of Jesus. I'm going to start with the most powerful man in the Roman Empire, Caesar Augustus, and then I'll talk about Herod. In the next episode, I'll tell you more about Mary and Joseph. Caesar Augustus, the first emperor of Rome. Caesar Augustus plays an interesting part in the birth of Jesus. It is he who orders the census that causes Joseph and Mary to travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem. He was the ruler of the entire Roman Empire when Jesus was born. And here is that story from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. Well, this census puts into motion the events that led Joseph and Mary to travel to Bethlehem while Mary was pregnant. The timing is such that Mary gives birth to Jesus while they are there. 
It was also Caesar Augustus who appointed Herod as the client king of the Roman province of Judea. That's what Israel was called during the Roman occupation. Caesar and Herod, as it turned out, were both allies and friends. They were kind of like two peas in a pod. Well, let me tell you how Caesar Augustus became the first Roman emperor. He went from relative obscurity to the most powerful man in the Roman Empire. Augustus was born in Rome in 63 BC. His father died when he was quite young, so young Octavius, which was his given birth name, was raised by his mother, Atia. Atia had connections. Her uncle was Julius Caesar, who at that time was a prominent military general. Julius agreed to adopt young Octavius. Eventually, Julius made Octavius his sole heir, a stroke of luck for Octavius. In return, Octavius took his uncle's name, becoming Gaius Julius Caesar. Now, Julius Caesar, as we all know from our history lessons, was assassinated in 44 BC, just one year after assuming control of the Roman Empire. He was murdered by his political foes, Brutus and Cassius. Gaius was Julius Caesar's sole heir, but he was also really young, only 19 years old. He didn't have the political savvy and military muscle to run the country on his own. So he agreed to a political alliance with two of Julius's former allies, Marcus Lepidus and Mark Antony. Fast forward to 36 BC. Marcus Lepidus was expelled from the threesome, leaving Mark Antony and Gaius to rule Rome, with Gaius ruling in the west and Antony ruling in the east. Mark Antony ruled his empire together with his great love, Cleopatra the queen of Egypt. It is during this time period that Mark Antony first notices the efforts of Herod, who at that time was a young commander in the province of Galilee. Remember, Israel was now under Roman control, and Mark Antony ruled eastern Rome, including Israel. What happens next is that Mark Antony and Gaius have a major falling out and their hatred leads to an all-out civil war. It all comes to a head at an epic sea battle in 31 BC. Gaius's forces defeated the combined army of Antony and Cleopatra. The humiliation of their defeat drove Antony and Cleopatra to commit suicide in 30 BC. Gaius became the sole ruler of the entire Roman Empire, a vast territory with a population of about 45 or 50 million people. He then restored the government to a traditional republic, as it had been before. Out of appreciation, the Roman Senate conferred on him the title of Augustus, a Latin word that means revered. The title had no definite powers associated with it, but it expressed an exalted position. Gaius then became known as Caesar Augustus, the first Roman emperor. I'm telling you Caesar's story for a reason. I want you to understand that Caesar was the ultimate ruler over Israel at the time of Jesus' birth and into his early childhood. Herod, of course, was the appointed or puppet king of Judea, 
But just keep in mind that Caesar was a really powerful man who suffered no fools, and he ruled with an iron fist, and he had a vast and powerful army. Herod answered only to Caesar, and he most certainly did anything that Caesar wanted. One last comment about Caesar. He ruled his empire for 40 years. As with many rulers before him, he spearheaded many improvements in his vast territory. Some of his improvements ultimately helped to spread Christianity. I'll tell you how in a minute. So now I'm going to tell you more about Herod, the man Caesar picked to run Israel on his behalf. King Herod, the client king of the Roman province of Judea. Herod was a decade older than Caesar Augustus. He was born in 73 BC in Idumea, a country southeast of Judea. His father was Idumean and his mother was Nabataean. In 135 BC, the Idumeans were forced to convert to Judaism by the Hasmoneans. That meant that technically, Herod was raised a Jew, but his mixed bloodline and the fact that he wasn't a Jew by lineage became a major sticking point with the Jewish leaders when he became the king of the Jewish people. Herod's father was a high-ranking official in Judea under the Romans. He secured a good job for both Herod and his brother. The two brothers were appointed to be the governors of the regions of Galilee and Jerusalem, respectively. Herod was only 25 years old. From this promotion, Herod learned that it paid off to please Rome. He also learned how to navigate between two very different worlds, the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem and the Roman leaders in Rome. Remember in the story of Caesar how I said that Herod caught the eye of Mark Antony? Well, in 41 BC, Antony promoted Herod to be tetrarch, or a co-ruler of Galilee. Well, soon after, a power struggle ensued over who would control all of Israel, and Herod was suddenly in jeopardy of losing his job. So he fled to Rome to plead his case. And in yet another twist of luck, the Roman Senate decided to oust the current leaders and appoint Herod as the new client king of the Roman province of Judea. Well, from that point on, Herod was in Rome's back pocket. He knew what Caesar wanted, and he delivered it. When Mark Antony, his Roman ally, died in 30 BC, Herod went to Rome again and pledged his allegiance to the new ruler. Augustus responded favorably to the offer, and ultimately Herod and Augustus became close friends. Their friendship did not go unnoticed by the Jewish leaders in Israel, the majority of whom hated being ruled by Rome. Herod then had two strikes against him, his mixed bloodline and the fact that Herod was so closely aligned with Rome. Herod knew that he was despised by the Jewish leaders, and it contributed to his increasing paranoia and depression. He was literally obsessed with retaining his power, and he was freaked out about being ousted. 
He killed several of his own family members out of his paranoia of being dethroned. He had his brother-in-law, two of his sons, his mother-in-law, and his favorite wife all executed because he thought they were conspiring against him. He was so bad that at one point, Caesar said this about Herod, quote, it is better to be Herod's pig than his son. Herod died in 4 BC after an excruciatingly painful illness. Caesar Augustus died 20 years later in 14 AD and was succeeded by his stepson and heir, Tiberius. Tiberius was the reigning emperor at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, and he is the one that Jesus refers to as Caesar in the Gospel stories. Okay, well, let me draw a conclusion here. This is what's important to keep in mind. When Jesus was born, Caesar Augustus ruled over the Roman Empire, and King Herod ruled over Israel, or the Roman province of Judea, as Caesar's puppet king. Both men were obsessed with power, and they really cared little for the plight of the average person. That was very obvious because of the very oppressive taxation policies. These two lived in lavish palaces, traveled in elite circles among the very wealthy, and had little contact with the people they ruled over. You can just envision this huge disparity and disconnection between them and the vast majority of people they govern. And you will see how vastly different their lives were from the two other people I'm going to tell you about, Mary and Joseph. How Roman Rule Benefited Christianity Now, before I wrap up, I want to point out a few ways that Roman practices and policies actually helped Christianity to spread in the first century. First, there was the Pax Romana, or the Peace of Rome. This extended period of peace lasted from 27 BC to 180 AD. It was a time almost without warfare in the Middle East, virtually unheard of in modern times. Most of the people in Israel were not impacted by the skirmishes with the Roman army. They only stepped in when there was a serious problem. Within the Roman Empire, Israel was a small territory, and the Romans did not feel the need to keep a large military presence there. It was up to Herod and his forces to keep the peace. But this Pax Romana led to stability, and stability leads to the freedom to consider new ways of thinking. And this included the teachings of Jesus. Second, the Romans upgraded infrastructure, including roads. Roman roads made it easier to get around the empire. It also made it easier to spread information. That was a big benefit to the apostles and early disciples, and to the apostle Paul in particular. Third, just remember that Christianity, at least in the beginning, was perceived to be a part of the Jewish religion. It was thought to be a separate sect of Judaism, and the Jewish religion was protected under Rome's religious freedom. It wasn't until the 60s AD that it became clear to the Romans that Christianity was transcending its Jewish roots and becoming a major religion of its own. 
what it means to us today. The story of Jesus' life is entangled with the story of Rome and Israel combined. History always has something to teach us, most certainly when it comes to understanding God. Seeing the bigger picture helps to put my own faith journey into perspective. I see clearly humankind has always been attracted to power and wealth. The stories of Caesar and Herod remind me that there have always been and there will always be men and women who covet power and will do anything to get it. The earth is ruled by people of power, some of whom are decent and just, many of whom are not. There is little I can do to change world regimes, but I can help the people around me. And that's exactly what Christians are called to do, help their neighbors. We do have power to help people, and we should. I also see clearly that Christianity is a realm, not a reign. In contrast to earthly nations and human regimes, Christianity does not exist in just one place on earth, but everywhere on the planet. Christianity flourishes on the earth today is evidence because there are two billion people who call themselves Christians. In the end, I have to remember that God ultimately is in charge of the earth and every nation on it. He has ultimate sovereignty over his creation. My response to our rulers is to pray for them, asking God to give them wisdom. Next time on the JC. Next time on the JC, we'll look at the setting of the Nativity story. And I'll take a closer look at our two main characters, Mary and Joseph, the earthly parents of Jesus. The Jesus Chronicles is written and produced by Sandy Laws. It is edited by Stacy Sepp. Check out my website at www.thejesuschronicles.org. You'll find more episodes, beautiful original illustrations for each story, and the sources I've used for my research. Thanks for listening.